Well, good morning. Have you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Some have called uh, this passage of Scripture that we're about to study some of the most blessed words in all of the Bible. Um, so it's, it's our practice to stand as we read from the Scripture. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, uh, I will read from Colossians chapter 2, uh, 9 through 15. If you're able, please stand. If not, please, please remain seated. Um, but Colossians 2. Uh, Verses 9 through 15 is our passage for today. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Please have a seat. And let me pray for us as we um, go into God's Word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this morning and and for this Memorial Day weekend. We're very grateful for those who have paid uh, the price of their lives in order to uh, help secure and and bring safety and and freedom to our country and to many others around the world. And uh, we're grateful for that. We're grateful uh, for the freedom we're given in Christ and for this passage here where we will learn uh, the incredible uh, news of the gospel afresh here today, Lord willing. And so we just ask for your help. Um, Lord, I, there could be lots of places our minds could be right now. Uh, maybe our, our schedules shift a little bit this morning because of a fewer Sunday school classes. We were in second service. We used to go to first. And maybe we have lunch plans or picnic plans today or tomorrow. And um, maybe we're going to see some family or friends we haven't seen in a while. Um, God, God I, I pray that we would be all here right now. That our minds wouldn't stray, that we wouldn't um, be uh, beyond 11.45 when our service lets out. We wouldn't be beyond that right now, that we'd be right here, all here right now. And would your spirit just enable us to um, be engaged? Um, Lord, anytime we open up your word, there's an opportunity for us to be changed. And so I I pray that you would change us as a result of, of this time in your word. We recognize that you can do that. We have faith that you can do that. And we trust that you can do that. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little Facebook uh, time, uh, what do you call those, time hop, pass reminder thing popped up to me. And uh, it was last Memorial Day, I, was, I, I taught on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And so I did ask Daniel about a year or so ago, um, hey, are you going to be preaching through Colossians at any point in time? And he said, I don't have plans for that. And I said, well, dibs on that. I'm going to preach the longest series ever on the book of Colossians ever taught because I did Colossians 1 uh, last year. Here we are in Colossians 2. Uh, Maybe uh, by the time I would retire, I will be at the end of Colossians 4. Uh, But I'm grateful to have this passage. Um, A church is pretty familiar with Colossians right now. I know our middle school has been going through the book of Colossians. Uh, Seth Kemp revisited uh, Colossians 1 here recently. So uh, I'm excited to be able to be in this book today. Uh, Although we're pretty familiar, I, I thought I would still add... Um, some background here that is the Apostle Paul that wrote the book, but he was not the founder of the church of Colossae. 
uh, is a man by the name of Epaphras, who was in Ephesus when Paul was there in his third missionary journey, uh, heard the gospel, came to know Christ, and then went back to Colossae to share the gospel uh, with people in his town, and, and a church sprang up there. So later in time, uh, Epaphras went to Rome to be with Paul and to uh, get discipled further and, and some ministry training. And you kind of imagine Paul being somewhat the spiritual grandfather of this church in Colossae, saying, okay, Epaphras, tell me about the church. How are the saints doing? How are my grandchildren doing in Colossae? And I'm sure Epaphras had some good things to say, but he had some hard things to say too. And said, you know, the church is struggling, Paul. They're, they're struggling with, with false teachers, these gurus that have come into our church and are teaching things that are contrary uh, to God's word. And so that's, that's where we start up here in Colossians is with that knowledge. Uh, one study Bible lists the theme of this book as this. And see if you see threads of this running throughout the passage we just read. Uh, the summary of this book, according to One Study Bible, Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. I think you can see some threads of this theme running throughout our passage today. So what were some of the false teaching that, that was being taught here in the church? Although we don't know its exact nature, we see some hints of it throughout the book. Um, first of all, just legalism was being, it looks like it was being taught in the church. If you look at verses 16 and 17, just beyond uh, the section we just read. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come. Um, not the substance belongs to Christ. In verse 18, you see it's mentioned that asceticism was being taught. Uh, asceticism can be defined as denying things in one's life or having severe discipline in one's life in hope of reaching some type of spiritual plane uh, by, by that type of denial or discipline. Uh, you see in verse 18, worship of angels was being taught as well. Uh, and possibly there are some early forms of, of Gnosticism that we see uh, throughout the book. Um, a couple elements of Gnosticism. One is that um, there were some people that were on such a high spiritual plane that they had special access to God. And the rest of the you know, kind of lowly people around them had better get that spiritual input uh, from those spiritual gurus. was one aspect of Gnosticism. There's also another belief in Gnosticism that uh, the spiritual and the physical were separate. And, and so uh, whatever you did in the physical aspect of your life didn't, did not have any effect on your spiritual life at all. So you can see the problem with that because there's a lot of sin happening in the physical realm. And they're saying that was fine in the church because it does not affect our, our spiritual lives. So, uh, you know, we can, can look at those, those hints that we see throughout the book and, and say, uh, oh, that poor church so blinded by the false teaching, the false thinking in, their, in the church. What a shame. Um, but, but I think if we look kind of a little bit deeper in our own hearts, we see that these elements of, of false teaching and thinking in the, in the church in Colossae are probably true in us today, uh, in today's culture, in today's church as well. Um, have, have we let a, a heresy of, of legalism creep into our thinking Maybe a little bit, as we see in the book of, of Colossians. Uh, maybe we have in a very blatant way. Um, many years ago, I was, I was in campus ministry, and a, 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 a woman from another campus ministry at Bradley University wanted to meet with me at the student center to talk about how our two ministries could partner uh, together. 
And I, I knew that this other campus ministry uh, had some theological issues with it, but I thought, well, a chance to get together and proclaim the gospel. So I sat down with her in, in the student center, and I, and I said, you know, I, we might have some, some struggles in partnering together because I believe that fundamentally we have a different view of who Jesus Christ is and how one gets to know him. Um, and I said, I, I believe that it's through Christ alone uh, that someone can enter into a relationship with God. There's nothing else that anyone needs. And she quickly sprang up and said, well, I believe that too. It's through Christ alone. And I was thinking, great, there's been some type of revival in this campus ministry. Something has changed. I'm, I'm excited to hear this. And, and she went on to clarify, I too believe it's through Christ alone that we have the power to do the works that we need to do in order to earn our salvation. And I thought, oh, wow, we're a lot farther than you think um, here. And, and, and just sadness on, on the reality that that's where uh, this campus ministry was and where, where she was personally. Here we were saying the exact same words. It's through Christ alone and having incredibly different definitions of what that, what that meant. And so there is a, maybe a blatant way that legalism can creep into the church today um, but do we look in the mirror and, and maybe see someone who's maybe would give intellectual assent that legalism in the church today is wrong, but as we live out our lives practically, maybe we see some elements of, of legalism uh, in our lives? Um, have you ever thought to yourself, I, I know my sins are forgiven, but I still feel guilty for what I've done. I've committed this sin or these sins, and so I'm, I'm going to try to do this good act in order to try to prove myself worthy enough to God to kind of make up for that, that sin? Do you try to make up for your sins, believing that God would feel better about you if you do right things? Do you do these make-up actions by your own strength to prove, prove yourself worthy to God? And when you do these things, I mean, whose glory are you doing them for? For God or, or for your own glory? Maybe we've let some mysticism creep into our lives as well. Um, we might find ourselves saying things like, well, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that. And another person might think, well, God's never told me something directly. I, uh, they're on a different spiritual plane than I am. And we kind of reconcile, well, wait a minute, isn't God's word sufficient for life and godliness? Do we need extra revelation outside of the 66 books of the scriptures to give us all we need for our Christian walks? So some have blatantly believed heresy, and we shake our fingers at them, but then we look in the mirror and we see some of these things maybe in our own lives. We can be led away by false teaching. We can be led away by false thinking as well. Um, things that seem very close to the truth but are just a little bit off, especially. Um, but the question comes to, are we helpless and in our pursuit? Are we helpless to pursue right thinking and right teaching? Does God leave us to ourselves to discern what's right and wrong and thankfully the answer is by no means <laughs> by no means here's our big idea for today that the resources god provides through the gospel are sufficient as we discern false teaching and false thinking the resources god provides through the gospel are sufficient as we discern false teaching and false thinking so let's look at the first resource given to us through the gospel and that's this. We are fully filled. We are fully filled. And that may sound a little funny. In fact, I've, I've worded a few of these principles a little funny in hopes that they, they stick with us uh, beyond just this worship service. But uh, we get this principle, we are fully filled, from verses 9 and 10. 
Let's say, for in him, I'll reread them for us. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled or, or brought to fullness or made complete in him who is ahead of all rule and authority. Now, some would say that, that verse 9 is the most clear statement of Christ's deity that we see in the whole of Scripture. Okay? Jesus as the God-man. He's deity and he's humanity. And, and there's a temptation here. I'm going to go into some, some theological thoughts on um, Jesus being fully man and fully God. I actually stole some of this from my own seminary paper that, that I wrote. And there's a temptation, I think, for some to say, okay, Ben, go ahead and launch into that theology. But, you know, whatever those old dead guys wrote, I don't really care. Whatever the theologians talk about, I don't really care. I know that Jesus died for me. Let's move on. Okay. So for those of you who are tempted to think that way, let me tell you, understanding this theology is central to our salvation. Okay? And that's why Paul includes it here in the book of, of Colossians. So I'm going to talk about what this means in general, talk about what it means for the Colossian church, and then what it means uh, for us at your front door. So uh, as we do that, Charles Ryrie, to just give us some encouragement here, he once said the concept of the God-man or the one-person union, or some have called it the, the hypostatic union, um, of the divine and human natures in one person is probably one of the most difficult concepts to comprehend in theology. So here we go. Many interpretations have arisen as it relates to Jesus Christ being the God-man. So uh, ENDS defines the God-man as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains forever undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. He goes on to support his definition. The two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. That's key. Though Christ sometimes operated in the the sphere of his humanity, in other cases operated in the sphere of his deity, in all cases what he did and what he was could be attributed to his one person. So in this view, speaking of old dead guys, John Calvin also taught the two natures are united without any transfer of their abilities or attributes his point uh, was that if, if one takes attributes away from one nature that it ceases its original identity uh, the human nature would cease to be human and the divine nature would cease to be divine the two natures cannot be mixed so some examples given of this are infinity cannot be transferred to finity mind cannot be transferred to matter God cannot be transferred to man, and man cannot be transferred to God. So the two natures of Christ cannot lose or transfer a single attribute. So there are two results here uh, that are worth noting. We can't just say, whatever theologians discuss is fine. I just know that Jesus died for me, and that's good enough. So here's the first result worth noting. Having both natures as the God-man, or the hypostatic union, is a key doctrine doctrinal truth of the person of Christ. Without him being fully man, okay, stay with me here, without him being fully man, he couldn't serve as a sacrifice for man's sin. Okay? Without him being fully God, he, his death could not have served as a sacrifice for all of human history. So we need both elements there. Okay? The second result, the eternal priesthood of Christ is based on him being the God-man. So being man He can act as a priest for man. He can intercede for us. Being fully God, 
his priesthood could be everlasting and he could be a mediator, mediator between God and man forever. So why does Paul bring this up to the Colossian church? What's the big deal if they're struggling with this false teaching? A few reasons. Remember that there was potentially this heretical thought that the physical and the spiritual did not mix. They were completely separate. So Paul tears into this heresy and says the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So that takes care of that. They're connected in Christ. You are filled. You are connected to Christ as well. Also to remind them that they are fully filled. Christ is who he says he is. He's imparted that fullness to the Colossian church. Uh, John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we are partakers of the divine nature. So, Colossian church, you have the authority of Christ to battle against this false teaching. So consider, as an illustration, a, a, a gallon of, of 2% milk. Okay? And you squeeze chocolate syrup in there and stir it up. What happens? The, the nature of that 2% milk completely changes now. It is chocolate milk. It is filled with chocolate. It is completely changed. Well, in this illustration, Christ is the chocolate. We are the milk, right? We are completely changed. We are filled completely with Christ, and we are changed. And let's just face it, chocolate makes things better, and Jesus makes things better, right? There are many reasons why we need to believe these truths as we face false teaching and and false teaching. The, The implications here are pretty staggering. If we truly understand we don't lack anything, how do we face up to false teaching? Well, we understand that we have access to complete truth. We have authority from Christ's deity to teach and combat false teaching in a loving way. You might be saying, well, Ben, I don't, I don't teach. How's that relate to me? What about false thinking? Because we all think, it's whether we think biblically or not. Um, if we truly understand that we don't lack anything, how do we face up to false thinking? Well, John MacArthur wrote this. As as a result of the fall, man is in a sad state of incompleteness. He is spiritually incomplete because he's totally out of fellowship with God. He is morally incomplete because he lives outside of God's will. He is mentally incomplete because he does not know ultimate truth. But at salvation, believers become partakers of the divine nature and are made complete. Believers are spiritually complete because they have fellowship with God. They are morally complete in that they recognize the authority of God's will. And they are mentally complete because they know the truth about ultimate reality. Believer, what are you lacking? Is there some spiritual status that you're missing? That's what the Colossians were being told. Is there a a problem that you're facing, that you're not equipped by God's grace to handle? You are fully filled. All believers who are in him are complete in Christ and are not needing to listen to false teaching or false thinking. Let's go to the second resource given to those that are in him. Number two, we are fully circumcised and baptized 
put those in quotes. We'll flesh this out a little bit. No pun intended. Um, and for those who have children, you're welcome for having to explain what circumcision is later. Uh, but verses 11 and 12, where we draw this principle from, "...in him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there was this mixture of, of pagan ritualistic belief and Jewish ritualistic belief that were colliding in the church in Colossae. And there Paul states that salvation is completely apart from these rituals. It's completely apart from these rituals. It seems that they were teaching um, that in order to have a relationship with God, you must do these rituals in order to be saved from one's sins. I think a biblical view of circumcision is, is that it symbolized the need for our hearts to be cleansed. You see in Deuteronomy ten sixteen, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then in verse 17, Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. There, uh, Paul writes in, uh, Romans 4.11, uh, referring to Abraham, that he, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so this ritual was not needed for Abraham to be in right relationship with God. So what does circumcision mean here in verse 11? And why did I ask you to write that down as part of the principle of number two here? Um, this is a circumcision done without hands. So what is, what is being cut off is the living in the flesh, okay? We are no longer beholden to the flesh anymore. We are now separated from that realm of flesh, and we can now live in the realm of the Spirit. So that's what that means. So Paul references circumcision. Then he talks about baptism. Um, how is one buried in baptism uh, are we talking about water baptism here? What is this referring to here? So let me clear up right away. This is not talking about water baptism. This is talking about a spiritual baptism for those that are in Christ. So Paul just got done talking about this ritual of circumcision and how it's not required for one to be saved. So why would he go on to talk about a ritual of water baptism to be required for, to, for salvation? So we, it makes sense, right, that it's not about water baptism. There, there is some thought here, though, that maybe he uses this language specifically to remind the Colossian church that water baptism has replaced circumcision as a reminder of, of what's happened to those that are in, in him. So that's, that's a possibility here. But I think uh, the main emphasis here is that there's spiritual baptism into Christ as one places their faith by him, in him, uh, by the incredible work of God with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So let me tell you a story, a story here about a man named Stanley. Stanley was a nice all-American college student. He, people liked him. He was a good student, an intramural star, drove a nice car, and was well-liked by many. And Stanley was very open to Christianity and wanted to know how to have a relationship with God. And he had some friends who he believed to be Christian. So he went to them one by one and asked them, how do I become a Christian? Well, the first friend told him they needed to give up his wealth. And, and his possessions and have what he called a, a quote, possessions burning ceremony in order to show his true devotion to Christ. Another told him that he had to give up his interests by collecting his sports equipment and his hobbies and putting them in a garbage can outside of the church. 
to show his surrendering to Christ. One told him that he needed to give up his friendships and vow to shun anyone that didn't share his passion for God. Well, sadly, Stanley became disillusioned as each friend gave him a picture of Christ that was far different than the stories his grandmother used to tell him. What Stanley needed was someone to tell him, Stanley, you can be completely saved apart from any ritual. There is no work needed in order to be saved. The work is done. Now, a false teacher will tell you that there's something in religion that you need to do, some ritual you need to do in order to experience God to the fullest, in order to be fully saved. And I'm I'm not sure why uh, false teachers do that. Maybe there's some sense of pride that I I, I need to bring something to the table here in my relationship with God. There's, I, I have to give some work of my own so I can show myself worthy of this. But really, I think it's caused by a lack of understanding of Christ's work. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. We bring our sin. That's what we bring to the table when it comes to our salvation. So if you want a second option for principle two, you can say we are fully saved. We are fully saved. That's the second resource that we are given to those who are in him. Let's go to the third resource. We are fully saved forgiven. We are fully forgiven. This is from verses 13 to 14. Let me read them for us. For you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, Paul is helping the reader see Okay, I just talked about the rituals. Those don't lead you towards salvation. Let me expand that now to any work, not just ritualistic things, but any work. There is no work that you can add to your salvation. And he says by giving this lifeless illustration here, you are dead in your trespasses, lifeless. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 talk about the spiritual man and the natural man who, who can't even understand spiritual things. Because they do not have Christ. But this is God's work. We are made alive in him. He canceled the record of debt. Now this is kind of a neat illustration here that Paul puts in here. Because in the times of this writing, um, if I were to be owing Jake something here, if I were to owe him, I would write out a certificate of debt. And I would write it on a piece of papyrus or animal hide. And with ink, I would write out, here are the things that I, I'm indebted to Jake, I am condemned in front of him, I am an ower to him. Well, Paul says that that has been canceled for those that are in him. Or that, that term of cancel, some translations say a wiping away. Well, that ink that was written on that papyrus or animal hide, it didn't sink in. It literally could be wiped away. So Paul's giving this great image of, of that's totally taken away. The debt is gone by nailing it to the cross. You are no longer a condemned man. You are no longer a condemned woman. This is what God does. He wipes it away by nailing it to the cross. Not even a hint, not even a hint of work is needed to do this. Now, I spent a lot of my early years of my Christian life not understanding this. 
And my hope is that as you look at the scripture today, that you won't follow the path that I, that I laid out. Because I spent a lot of my early Christian life trying to be good enough to earn my salvation. I sinned, let me do this to try to make up for that sin. I sinned again, let me do this work to try to make up for that sin. This continual pattern. I still thought I could bring something to the table. Think about this. Someone who is sick may be able to work his way to a drugstore to get some type of medicine. Someone who is sick may be able to work his way to a doctor's office to get a prescription to help them. Someone who is sick may be able to work his way to a hospital to get some type of treatment. But a dead person can't do a thing. They're lifeless. They're helpless. If you have to move a corpse from the hospital bed to the morgue, you're not going to get any help from that corpse. If you've had to move a five-year-old who's sleeping from the couch to their bed, you know what I'm talking about. No help at all. We get that term, dead weight, right? This is what Paul is emphasizing. This is the work of God. God has made those who are in him alive. There was no work involved. Uh, A few of us went to a, a conference recently called Together for the Gospel, and the theme for the conference was the five solas of the Reformation, the five main principles of the Reformation. And this passage reminds me of those five solas, and the, and the conference added a few taglines to each sola. I'll read them to you. We, we stand on Scripture alone is the first sola. The tag was added, not man's wisdom. The second, we stand by grace alone, nothing that we earn. The third, we stand by faith alone, nothing we accomplish. The fourth, we stand in Christ alone, no other mediator. And the fifth, We stand for God's glory alone, not for our praise. So what's this mean for our front door? I I think, first of all, it means um, evangelistically speaking, as we try to talk to others about Christ, it means that we have great patience with those who do not know Christ, who maybe don't see things the same way we do, Uh, maybe some social issues they stand very opposed to. I've said this a lot recently, common sense anymore is not so common. Uh, I think that's a result of a lack of biblical worldview in our culture today. Um, but we can shake our first fist at someone that says, I believe a woman should have the right to choose whether or not to kill their baby in the womb. We shake our fists at those that say that men should be allowed in women's restrooms and vice versa. We shake our fists at people that say, we can take two people of the same gender, make them in a relationship, and call that marriage. And we get angry with people. We get frustrated with people that believe those things. Where is their spiritual state? They're dead in their trespasses. They're lifeless. They can't even begin to comprehend spiritual truths, let alone agree with our stance on social issues. And so I think evangelistically speaking, the fact that we are forgiven and we're in a culture around people who aren't forgiven, we can't, we can't just talk about abortion and transgender restrooms and homosexuality unless we want to bring in the gospel too. So should we have those conversations in our culture? Yes, we should. But I think if we do that devoid of sprinkling in gospel truths to that person, I I think we're wasting our time. So as we have those conversations, bring up the gospel into those conversations because we want to talk about biblical worldview, but we surely don't want to do it avoid from the gospel, devoid of the gospel. Common sense isn't common anymore today. What the world needs is not just our opinion and our biblical principles. They do, but they need the gospel. 
so they can understand our point of view. Also understanding that we're fully forgiven helps us to see that salvation is from the Lord, that there's no work, no human being or creature that can ever save us. Only Jesus, fully God, can pay the full penalty for our sins. We can stop trying to be good enough. You can stop trying to be a people pleaser. You can stop worrying about what others think about you. You can stop demanding your rights. Only one who is fully man and fully God can be a mediator between you and the Lord. The believer, with the right knowledge of Jesus as the reconciler, can now have hope when there is enmity between you and another person. Because the greatest enmity between you and God has been completely dealt with. We continue to see ourselves as small. When we are passed over for that promotion at work, we don't demand that we should have gotten it. We respond in thankfulness, God, that I have a job. What do I deserve? Separation from you forever. But your grace allows me to have purpose and meaning in a home in heaven. Because of his marvelous grace, I see him as huge and me as small. Now, in what role do I see me able to play the role of a prideful man? Who am I really? John MacArthur wrote that there were six characteristics of God's grace. One was it's a free gift. One was it's complete. One, it was eager to forgive. That it was certain. It was unequaled. And the last one is that it was motivating. That God's grace is motivating for us. And I, I've shared this illustration before. If, if, if I have um, an issue with another person, this person has sinned against me, and there's this mound of sin between me and this other person. I'm not saying I'm innocent myself. I probably sinned against them as well. But there's this amount of sin that this person, this mound of sin between me and this person because they've sinned against me. Now, if I look at that mound, I think, this person has done me wrong. I can't believe they've done all this. I demand that they stop. I'm not going to forgive them because look at all the wrong that they've done. And then I look at the amount of sin between me and the Lord. And I look at this mound, and I take it times infinity. (laughs) And that's the amount of sin that I have to the Lord. And what's God's response to me? as a result of my sin against him. It's mercy, it's grace, it's forgiveness. And now I look at this person, what's my motivated response to this person who sinned against me? I can't believe they've done that. How dare they do that to me? Mercy, grace, forgiveness over this infinite amount of sin that I've committed against God. What's my response to my spouse? What's my response to my roommate? What's my response to my mom? What's my response to my uncle? What's my response to my classmate? Mercy, grace, forgiveness. Grace is motivating. Forgiveness is motivating as we see what we've been given through Christ. The fourth resource that we've been given to those that are in him, we are fully victorious. We are fully victorious. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a picture here that that Paul is is painting. Um, Back in those times, a Roman emperor who has ruled over uh, his combatants would parade them to the streets 
and say, these are my captives now. I am in full rule and reign over these captives. So Paul paints a picture here of, of King Jesus, who's defeated Satan and his demons and those in the demonic realm, these fallen angels. Paul's exposing, again, this false teaching of, of worship of, of angels or those in the angelic or demonic realm. He's saying Christ is supreme over those things. So when it says over the rulers and authorities, he's talking about Satan and demons. Christ rules over those things. Don't, don't worship those lesser things of this world. There is something ultimate to worship. And we look at that and we say in 2016, okay, I'm good. No worship of angels here. I'm good. But what are the lesser things that we worship? What are those idols that we worship, that idol of looking good here in our church service, wanting to be seen as, as spiritually mature and strong when it comes to the things of the faith? I, I want my kids to, to know Christ and to follow him uh, for a lifetime so much that I worship that more than I worship God. I want that car and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to work overtime to get that car no matter what it takes. I want to get that grade and if I don't get that grade my life will be ruined. What's the thing, what's the lesser thing that you worship? I'm guessing it's not angels or demons. What are the lesser things that you and I worship? Why would we give our worship over to these lesser things when we can worship the ultimate? So can we be led away False teaching and false thinking, yes, we can. But does he leave us to ourselves? No, his, his resources is, are enough. I, I heard a song this week that I want to, to read the lyrics to you. Because um, I think this, the lyrics show, show brightly on the gospel and what, this, what Paul is trying to convey to the church in Colossae. Um, I'll just read it here. We all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where grace begins. We were hungry. We were thirsty with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. Just when all hope seemed lost, loved, love opened the door for us. Love said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Come meet this motley crew of, of misfits, these, these liars and these thieves. There's no one unwelcome here, so that sin and shame that you brought with you, you can leave it at the door. Let mercy draw you near to the thief and to the doubter, to the hero and to the coward, to the prisoner and the soldier, to the young and to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, all the last and all the first, all the paupers and the princes, all who fail, you've been forgiven, all who dream and all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all who chained, all the chained and all the free, all who follow, all who lead, all who's been let down, all the lost, you have been found, all who have been labeled right or wrong, to everyone who hears this song, come to the table. Come join the sinners that have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Let's pray together. God, we come to you, those who are in him, 
as the misfits, as the weird, as the outsiders in our world today. And we embrace it, God. We say thank you. Thank you for drawing us to the table. Thank you for making us new. Lord, I I pray for those in this room that would say, I've I've never experienced that. I know I'm a misfit, and I want to come to the table. What's that mean? Lord, would you draw them today? Would you draw them today? And for those of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, God, would you help us to understand the gospel afresh? Would you rid us of our mystical or asceticism or our legalistic thinking? And would you help us to embrace that we are fully filled, that we are fully saved, that we are fully forgiven, we are fully victorious. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.